the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome back to the Seth Leapson Show, 602-508-0960. That's our number as we head into Hour 3 here. A couple of things. Uh, first of all, David Dahl, what is your pin today? We didn't do your, uh, we didn't do your political pin yet. I've got my win pin on today. Win pin. Win. That's from uh, the Gerald Ford administration, right? That's right. Whip inflation now. Whip inflation now. Probably did more for selling pins than whipping inflation, right? Yeah, it certainly sold a lot of uh, taxpayer-funded uh, bumper stickers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's about all it did. Whip inflation now. The Ford. Uh, you know, interesting thing about Ford. Um, Robert Kennedy Jr., we talked a little bit about his, the announcement of his candidacy yesterday. Um, it's gotten a little more attention today. And one of the things we didn't mention which is something that uh, a lot of the political experts are pointing to, is the fact that he is starting out with about 14% of uh, the polling in the Democratic Party. Uh, It's not where Joe Biden is, but 14% is not a bad place to start, especially when you consider, and if you think about polls of some of your favorite candidates of yore, who when they started, you know, you kept wondering, why are they sitting at 2%? Why are they sitting at 3%? Why are they sitting at 5%? Can we get to 6%? Can we get to 7 Well, he's starting with 14% the Democratic Party. That's, you know, double what you would hope for for a, a really good starting candidate. Um, it'll be interesting to see the kind of uh, constituency he can cobble together, especially as he continues uh, his themes and campaigns on— um, on uh, the, the the kinds of public policies that led to the shutdowns and the lockdowns. I notice he's just not shying away or backing away from that. Good for him. I don't know how much purchase that has in uh, the Democratic Party, but good for him on that. Nonetheless, it'll be uh, it'll probably be encouragement if he can come in at 14 percent. It'll probably be some encouragement for Gavin Newsom to start thinking seriously about entering the race as well, because it shows there's room uh, or it shows there's desire in the Democratic Party for someone other than Joe Biden. How could there not be? Uh, It was Gene McCarthy in 1968 when he entered the race against sitting President Lyndon Johnson uh, that convinced Lyndon Johnson he couldn't viably run again when I think it was in New Hampshire, Gene McCarthy had such a strong showing against Lyndon Johnson in the 68 primaries, and it was Gene McCarthy's strong showing that encouraged RFK Jr.'s dad, Bobby Kennedy, to get into the race in 1968. We don't have, as a matter of history, a good track record of uh, presidential primary challengers taking out the incumbent president of their party But we do absolutely have the record of some of those incumbents saying, I think I will get out. I can't win. That was, for example, Lyndon Johnson. The two big ones in 
most of our lifetimes maybe would have been Ronald Reagan challenging Jerry Ford aforementioned. That's what made me think of it. Jerry Ford in 1976. Ronald Reagan came very, very, very close to taking out Jerry Ford. And of course, Jerry Ford was never elected president. He wasn't even elected vice president when you think about it. Um, Ronald Reagan got 24 states, I believe, to if my I took some notes earlier to to Ronald Reagan got 24 states to Jerry Ford's 27. Is that sound? No, 24 percent to 27. Nope, 24 states to 27. And then he got 45 percent to Jerry Ford's 53 percent. That's what my notes say. Sorry, I can't read my own writing. He came extremely close to taking Jerry Ford out. In 1980, Ted Kennedy did not get as close in his quest to take out Jimmy Carter. He got uh, 12 states to Jimmy Carter's 26, and he got 37% of the vote to Jimmy Carter's 51%. Um, so, as I say, be interesting to watch. I know he sometimes sounds a little bit like a conservative because of what he has to say about our corona or COVID policies. Um, he is not one of these liberals who is mugged by reality enough to come join us. Like you think of Jennifer Say, who was had to leave Levi's as the uh, as the president of branding because they drubbed her out and drummed her out for her for her for her initiatives to try and get the schools back open. She, a lifelong liberal, she had said at the time, who I think supported Elizabeth Warren for president. She's pretty much come to our side on most things, and a few others have too. Bobby. Kennedy Jr., Robert Kennedy Jr., that's how he goes, Robert Kennedy Jr., he has not done that, but he is critical of vaccines and uh, and shutdowns and lockdowns and was blaming Donald Trump for some of those. The interesting thing about his opposition to the vaccines is it's it's a universal opposition to vaccines. It wasn't just the COVID vaccines, uh, which is not where I'm at, and I don't think where most people are at. His uh, positions on all vaccines has been have been very, very controversial. And some of that's going to come around to bite him, too. I'm sure it will. Uh, but he was at it long enough that he ended up landing on the right position when it came to the covid vaccines. And that's what got him such renewed attention and support from conservatives uh, who were looking for help in uh, trying to forward promulgate that argument. Um, he wrote a book about Anthony Fauci, the better book if you want one and, and, and you want, I think, more serious and more substantial uh, and more credible positioning on this, on uh, what we did during COVID and uh, the nonsense that was Anthony Fauci and Fauciism, if you will. Uh, the better author is Alex Berenson and his book. But uh, you and I were talking just a little bit yesterday about uh, Ted Kennedy's uh, speech to the Democratic Convention in 1980, which was so famous. And it was probably the last great thing, great speech by any standard that Ted Kennedy gave. Uh, and I'm trying to think, you know, funny thing about Democratic Party rhetoricians, speechifiers, speech givers, funny thing about them you hear that, oh, well, they are so articulate. They are so gifted. Um, they said that about Bill Clinton. And then after Bill Clinton, they said that about Barack Obama. But the funny thing about that is if you just take a step back and think about it, um, can you think of anything great rhetorically that Bill Clinton, for eight years in his presidency, can you think of a great line in a great speech? I mean, we can all make fun of certain things he said, obviously. 
that are memorable that he probably wishes weren't. But can you think of any great lines and any great speeches that were memorable but that he would be happy to have you remember? Can you, Bill Clinton? I can't. It's the economy, stupid. Yeah, I don't, I don't know that that's something he'd particularly be proud about. And I'm not even sure he even ever said that. Uh, that was a line James Carville posted as the campaign mantra in 1992. Um, but now take the point and shift it to Barack Obama, this great rhetorician, even more articulate supposedly than Bill Clinton, this you know law instructor from the University of Chicago Law School. Um, can you think of any great lines and any great speeches he said that he would want remembered? Anything memorable? One struggles. One actually does more than struggle. One searches in vain. It's kind of an interesting um, great inflation, uh, or in, one might say defining rhetoric down to talk about how great and articulate these guys were. No memorable lines. Not any memorable lines that were favorable anyway. Um, in truth, uh, Ted Kennedy had, vile though we knew him to be, in truth, he had a more lasting impact on Democratic rhetoric, memorable rhetoric that he would want to be remembered for than Barack Obama and Bill Clinton um, put together. I think I have it right here. And not to yield. For me, a few hours ago, this campaign came to an end. For all those whose cares have been our concern, the work goes on, the cause endures, the hope still lives, and the dream shall never die. That was, uh, that was what Ted Kennedy was uh, known for. Now, again, he was in the Senate for many, 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 many years uh, and only had that one line. Um, but, you know, you think about Ronald Reagan's speeches, and you probably have about 20 great memorable lines to choose from, lines that he'd be happy to have you remember um, about him and about his presidency. I mean, people can quote Ronald Reagan's lines all day long, and not just as president. They are memorable from his 1976 run, and they are memorable from his 1964 speech on behalf of Barry Goldwater, and they are memorable from his speeches as governor of California. Don't define rhetoric down. Don't define greatness down. That's another lesson of Churchill's as well. Don't define greatness down. Don't confuse mediocrity with true, true greatness, which I think we do too much of around here. I'm Seth. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. I... Um, I see. I take note that uh, four people have now been arrested uh, in the in the gruesome murders, those terrible mu- murders of the Alabama teens in Dadeville, Alabama. Four people have now been arrested. Uh, you, um, it, it's it's not. I said on. I said the other day when this happened on Monday in my monologue that um, this is not. This shooting is not going to. Um, is not going to. Uh, get the attention that other shootings get. Um, Though teens were killed, four teens were killed, and now there seem to be four people arrested at a Sweet 16 party. There's something twofold working against the difference between mass shootings with certain narratives versus mass shootings of other narratives. And you could just kind of tell that 
and the texture of the story as it was coming out. You could just kind of tell Dadeville's going to be forgotten. And um, first of all, it's the South. And unless there's a certain narrative that can be applied to these shootings, uh, the New York Times and uh, NPR and PBS and the rest aren't going to show the certain kind of interest, as you know. Uh, and as we've talked about here, it's a tragic thing, but it is a true thing that our racial conscientiousness, our hyper-racial conscientiousness in this country has uh, made of us um, the tragic thing of preferred victims and desired assailants. If they don't fit certain categories of racial expectation, these things get buried and they get ignored. And it's a terrible thing because it diminishes the cause, it diminishes the understanding, and it diminishes the very value of those lives that are taken from us. We've lost that sensitivity to life in this culture a lot of different ways. I happen to think that the coarsening of the culture is a terrible thing, and I happen to think in certain respects the debates over and about abortion policy go to the coarsening of culture and the appreciation of life and what happens to the conscience of a country that can take life so casually legally, as well as what happens to the conscience of a nation that values different lives differently based on their race. Thurgood Marshall, before he was on the Supreme Court, he was a lawyer, and he was a lawyer for the Legal Defense Fund of the NAACP, and uh, wrote and argued the Brown versus Board of Education case in 1954, the Supreme Court, famous Brown case, that was his case. And in his brief, he wrote that distinctions by race are so evil, arbitrary, and invidious that they have no place in the public sphere whatsoever. It's working off memory, but I'm pretty sure verbatim. I tried to remember that line years ago and commit it to memory. Evil, arbitrary, and invidious. Evil, I should hope we wouldn't have to think about that or talk about why divisions and distinctions by race are evil. They've never led to anything good in any society whatsoever, including when we have had uh, lapses of our own morality here and used to have law and code based on someone's race. Um, took us a lot of years and a lot of blood to get through that and over that. Evil, first word Thurgood Marshall used. Second one was arbitrary. Arbitrary. Subject to the vicissitudes of any given majority at any given time or any preferred majority or minority of any given time. In other words, arbitrary making no sense, not grounded in any rational reasoning. Arbitrary. That's how tyrannies operate, by arbitrary enforcements based on the whims and vicissitudes of whoever has the power. And then finally, invidious, evil, arbitrary, and invidious. Invidious, good word, David. You ever use it? means dividing of people, creating division among and between human beings in this case. And that's exactly, probably, 
the right – exactly, probably. That's exactly the right word for what distinctions in law and culture by race do. They pit us against one another. Evil in the sense that they diminish the life, the value of life, someone of a preferred or, 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 or non-preferred race, arbitrary, the mark of a tyrant, and invidious in that they create more divisions among and between us. And so when you think about the way we cover evil when it does happen, whether it's a mass shooting or some other thing, and we make of it a preferred or non-preferred race as the distinguishing characteristic of how much attention we're going to use and how much political weaponization we're going to deploy about that, then you are creating not only more evil in a vicious cycle of its own, but more invidiousness, more division, and most importantly, most importantly, a lesser respect for human life, a diminishment of the understanding of human life. A country that started out with the philosophy that we were dedicated to protecting life and liberty so that we could pursue our happiness and that we are all equal in our abilities or should be all equal in our natural rights to enjoy life and liberty. What a far distance we've traveled after all the hills and dales we've gone through in trying to get the race thing right here. We're playing all those games all over again for the most crude and crass political purposes. Uh, I, 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 I just, I will never forgive Joe Biden for the speech he gave in Georgia last year about a voting rights legisl- about a piece of voting rights legislation when he said if you're against it as a republican you're part you're you're in the party of you're in the party of George Wallace you're in the party of Bull Connor you're in the party of Jefferson Davis I don't even know if he even knew the history of what he was talking about but that kind of speech that kind of created division the kinds of collapsed distinctions we make um, about morality and life in this country and then use race to ratchet up the story or ratchet down the story or ignore the story. Were these four teens' lives not as valuable as other people's lives just because the color of their assailant might have been the same? Is their value of life any different? I don't really care anymore about, and I guess I never did, about the race of an assailant in a mass shooting or any other crime. I want to know about the family they came from. I want to know what the ethics of that family were. I want to know about the school they came from and what the ethics of the school they attended if they went to school were. And you know what else, unfortunately, I want to know, and we have to know increasingly if we're going to get this right, I want to know their talks screen as well. Okay, I'm Seth Liebson. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. I gave you candy earlier, didn't I? We had a little incident with it, didn't we? Uh, A minor incident, I guess. Little more than minor. Minor means almost not worth talking about. Little means we need to talk about it to within an inch of its life. Perhaps a little fiasco. Yeah, it was a fiasco. We have here a, a very a very decent set of people in the office who like to put communal candy, 
at the front desk for passers-by to help themselves to or fellow co-workers, fellows worker. And um, usually it's wrapped. It's, you know, it's individually wrapped candy, whether they're the mini little candy bars or Easter bunnies or whatever they are in tinfoil. Um, but someone like dumped a bunch of what are those called? M&Ms? Yeah, M&Ms and Jordan Almonds maybe? Uh, something like that, yeah. Jordan yeah. Almonds in there without packaging. And I thought, what are we – and people were just reaching in with their hands and helping themselves. <laughs> and I thought, what are we, animals here? Bahamas? And so I put a spoon in there. I put a spoon. I mean, you don't go to a bar and just reach in and eat nuts. We know not to do that. So I put a spoon in there. And people started using the spoon. You can train the behavior you expect. This is what I do around here. I help things. I fix things. I'm not – I'm like BASF. I don't make things. I just make the things that are made better. And then you, producer, David, uh-huh. you walk by and just happily scoop it all up with your hands, totally disregarding the spoon. This is public shaming because it's the only form that will train you, I think. Well, okay. You know, I, I guess it depends on the, the texture of the object. I think I, I said to you earlier, you know, at the bar I might have the nut with my hand, but I don't think I'd grab the olive with my hand. Okay, so you just think that uh, a Jordan nut, an M&M, uh, I think we put some Jelly Bellies in there. You think they're, they're self-resistant? They're uh, self-antisepticizing. It's like a bar of soap. It's like a bar of soap in a public bathroom. Is it clean in and of itself, or is this cause for using soft soap? The soap. It's oh, a, if it's a, a hard candy shell, they say it doesn't. All right. Anyway, can we use the spoon, please? Okay. Just so we can all think better of you. <laughs> yes. I, 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 <laughs> I took you down just to build you up. Uh, you'll you'll get used to me around here, David. Oh, I, the, I, the rest I, of the I, office I, did. I they used the spoon. They understood the stakes. I was a little <laughs> surprised. I had to be the one to introduce the spoon. But anyway, um, look, I uh, I was listening. I, I guess in this segment next, I want to say a thing or two about a couple things I heard on other shows on the platform today. Um, I was listening to Dennis Prager's interview with Heather MacDonald earlier. She has a brand new book out. We'll get her on for a prolonged interview, too. She's a longtime friend. I think I have known Heather MacDonald longer than all the other Salem hosts combined. I think I have. I have known her since the uh, 90s. Anyway, uh, not to brag. But to Brack, when race trumps merit is her new book, how the pursuit of equity sacrifices excellence, destroys beauty. It looks like a great book. I heard her interviewing with Dennis on it. And one of the great things she brings to her writings is the importance of um, the importance of art, uh, the importance of literature, the importance of beauty and how um I guess, writ large, the importance of culture. And she is originally a literature major. There is so much you can learn from great literature. And it dawned on me, she has a chapter in her book on what what this fetish over racism has done to destroy not only, you know, politics and the sciences, but culture and arts as well. And she talks about what it's done in certain of the museums. We've talked about uh, before here that what it did to the Smithsonian. And it dawned on me, literature, some of the great, the great quotes you hear from me about the importance of Western civilization as a political force come from literary giants like uh, Milan Kundera, who I'll say a word or two about in a moment, or 
uh, or Vaclav Havel or what I did with my monologue the other day, yesterday, I guess it was. And it dawned on me, you know, it's crying shame what our uh, institutions of higher education, what our colleges and universities have done with English literature. They have ruined it and destroyed it. They don't require any Shakespeare in most of the top colleges to get a degree in English literature. My, you know, the political scientist who changed my life and so many others, Harry Jaffa, guess what his undergraduate major was? Literature. We need to do more on literature. We'll, we'll be right back. I guess it was in yesterday's monologue that uh, I was quoting from uh, Milan Kundera. I quote from uh, this uh, Czech novelist a lot, especially the book of laughter and uh, forgetting. Uh, one of the quotes I love from that book is this. The first step in liquidating a people is to erase its memory, destroy its books, its culture, its history. Then have somebody write new books, manufacture a new culture, invent a new history. Before long, the nation will begin to forget what it is and what it was, and the world around it will forget even faster. I was rethinking of that quote when I was reading a piece, a review of a new, uh, a, a newly republished essay of Mulan Kundera's titled A Kidnapped West. It originally came out in French in the 80s, and it has been republished in English in America. And he, um, he got this review of it. Kundera is still alive. He's about uh, 94 years old. Got this review of it by Mark Judge that I just wanted to share with you. Um, because I think it it says so much about what these people who struggled under communism, these great literary uh, minds who had to flee communism if they could or be imprisoned by it if they couldn't, uh, like Vaclav Havel, who was imprisoned by it in the same country that Kundera was fortunate enough to flee. But um, as... Uh, as Mark Judge writes, Kundera's essay, which caused a huge reaction when it was first published, is best described as a love letter, because while it obviously endorses the Western values of human rights and freedom of expression, it drills down to the rich cultural ore that makes a civilization truly adored. That's good writing, isn't it? Ore that makes a civilization truly adored. According to Kundera, it was culture, not political ideas, an abstraction that led to the 1968 Prague Spring, where, where the people revolted against the puppet socialist government. Um, according to a French historian named Pierre Noir, who wrote the introduction to this essay, Kundera, quote, saw cultural vitality as an element in preparing the Prague Spring, a culture that was not a privileged invention of the elite, but rather the living value around which the people itself Gathered, Kundera himself wrote that, quote, it was the theater, the films, the literature, and the philosophy that in the years before 1968 led to the Prague Spring. He added that nothing could be more foreign to Central Europe and its passions for variety than Russia's uniform standardizing, centralizing. Kundera is particularly uh, ardent about the Jewish culture of Czechoslovakia and Central, Central Europe. He notes that Sigmund Freud and Gustav Mahler and Franz Kafka were all Central European Jews. Quote, aliens everywhere and everywhere at home, lifted above national quarrels, the Jews in the 20th century were the principal cosmopolitan integrating element 
in Central Europe. They were its intellectual cement, a condensed version of its spirit, creators of its spiritual unity. This is why Kundera loves the, quote, the heritage and clings to it with as much passion and nostalgia as though it were his own. And I was just kind of reading about that as Judge concluded, we, were right, we rightly here revere the Founding Fathers and honor our military veterans and the sacrifices they made to keep us free. Yet there is a certain level of lived-in culture that makes one not just appreciate a certain space and place, but adore it, which is what makes the postmodern woke culture so Soviet and so poisonous, so toxic here. Rather than appreciating the variety of cultures and traditions— some more conservative, some more liberal, that make America so dynamic, fun, and interesting, the woke try and force a humorless, totalizing society exactly like the one Kundera battled against. His 1967 novel, The Joke, explored the despair and absurdity of life under Stalin, where a single joke about a government official could destroy a person's entire life. Of course, in today's woke culture, a politically incorrect joke can have the same effect. In recent years, Kundera himself has been in danger of being canceled by feminists who don't like the depiction of women in some of his books. A young Kundera today might find himself canceled before even publishing a word. In his essay, A Kidnapped West, Kundera did not have much hope for America. He writes of our country that it has forgotten what it is. We have forgotten our heritage from both Athens and Jerusalem and are now awash in, as Kundera saw in Europe, we are now awash in wokeism, entertainment technology, not great works of culture, entertainment technology. And I was just thinking about this and these quotes that Mark Judge brought out of this essay when I was thinking about where we are as a country and a culture today, when you think about the notion that we all like so much that we got from either Daniel Patrick Moynihan or Andrew Breitbart, whoever you want to credit with saying it, that culture is either more important than politics or politics is downstream than culture. They're both making the same point in different uh, generations, that it was the theater, the films, the literature, and the philosophy that led to the uprising against the communist puppet government in Prague in 1968. What is our theater? What is our theater? Our films, our literature. What is our philosophy teaching us these days? I saw, uh, and credit to Mike Gallagher, radio host Mike Gallagher, for this. I I, I saw on the View uh, one of the great actresses of Broadway telling the ladies of the View that there's today no difference between Christian conservatives and the Taliban. And that's that's our theater today. Our theater today is uh, so anti, so against, so pushing um, against any notion of true diversity, whether it's cultural or religious. Um, the kind of fare you get is awful. Um, it... Um, by the way, I thought of that quote. I thought of that quote from that Broadway actress, and I thought, well, if you want to know the difference between Christianity and the Taliban, um, why don't you uh, try having one drag queen burlesque show in a territory controlled by the Taliban? Because it will be the last one. 
if you want a difference between the Taliban and Christianity, yeah, I mean, there are so many, obviously, and it's a disgusting notion. But the idea that so many people think it, and by the way, it got applause at The View, and it got, obviously, kudos and plaudits that line from Whoopi Goldberg. When they say they can't distinguish between Christianity and the Taliban, it tells me they don't know what Christianity is. It tells me they don't know what the Taliban is. These were the same people that were telling us when we were going to war against them that we had no right to impose our cultural superiority and message on them. Christians have no problem having schools for women. They have giving women full equal rights. Whoopi and this actress, whose name I'm blanking on, should be totally ashamed of themselves. But if it was the theater, the films, the literature, and the philosophy of the uh, 1960s liberals in places like Europe that pushed up and resisted Stalinism and Khrushchevism and Brezhnevism, uh, what do we have here in our culture that's pushing back against the woke? We don't. Our culture is in the full grip of the woke. And that's going to be a real challenge here. That's kind of why I think the import of literature needs to be brought back. That's why I try and bring those references here to this show. And it looks to me like Heather McDonald's new book has a lot in it, too. Good for her. She's a lit major. Good for her. Be right back. Folks, when you think about uh, the economy and all the challenges it faces— whether it's about failing banks or the stock market's volatility, why refi comes in and offers you an investment in a portfolio with a high fixed rate of return that's not correlated to the stock market or the Fed. It's an investment where you can compound your monthly income. You can turn it on and off. There's no loss of principal if you need your money back at any time. There are no fees in this secure collateralized portfolio that delivers a high fixed interest rate up to 10 Why Refi is based here locally. I encourage you to stop by their offices on Scottsdale Road in the 101. I've been there. I can tell you that you will not get a sales pitch, and no one's going to ask you to sign anything. When you meet with the team at Why Refi, you'll see why I trust them, and you can too. As I say, it's a due diligence approved firm, and they offer an up to 10.25% fixed rate of return. Check them out at investyrefi.com. That's the word invest, the letter Y, then R-E-F-Y.com. Or give them a call at 888-Y-REFI-34. That's 888-Y-REFI-34. If you haven't gotten your tickets yet for Cigar Night with Dennis Prager, which will be a week from tonight, you can get general admission tickets at 960thepatriot.com, our website, And uh, we're keeping it deliberately small to be deliberately intimate. So everyone will have a chance to uh, talk to, shake hands with, uh, converse with uh, Dennis. I'll be there and uh, know a couple of our local guests you hear from time to time will be there as well. So if you haven't gotten your tickets, it's going to be a great event. You don't have to be a cigar smoker. um, And it'll be a beautiful outdoor outdoor backyard uh, in the shade of uh, Camelback Mountain. As we close out, just a little bit of a sad thought that on this day in 1999 was, you know, the famous Columbine shooting. And we haven't really ever forgotten that as the kind of landmark or baseline school shooting, have we? Modern era. We must do better. We have to do better. You can... um, 
you can judge a country by a lot of different things in a lot of different ways. Uh, I remember once Gary Bauer put it that you ask a question about the strength of its military or the growth of its economy or the gleam of its cities, but you can measure a nation, too, by how many of its families are broken, how big its virtue deficit is, and how many its children cry themselves to sleep at night or feel that they have nothing else to do but to act out in the most violence of ways. And when you think about what I said in my monologue today earlier about 420, it seems we're just not a very serious country about any of this. Let's get serious, shall we? David, thank you. The rest of you, thank you. God bless you all. I'm Seth Liebson, and class is dismissed. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.